hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Ghouls in the House. I'm Natalie Latovsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we're getting closer and closer to Halloween, so we're sticking in with some classic horror. Yeah, for the next two episodes of Everything Works Out Right, we're really focusing in on some like all-time classics, which we haven't done a lot of. I think I think sometimes it seems a little intimidating, mm-hmm. like we need to do like a master class and like a classic, but... Yeah, and the more you think about it, there's a lot that we have to offer on some classics, but also it's really about the experience of watching them. And there are people who've dedicated entire academic careers to the study just of the director we're going to cover today, which is Hitchcock. I don't know why I'm being like cryptic about it yeah, it's hitchcock I mean, we're, we're looking at some hitchcock movies today you could fill a library with books just about this stuff and i mean mm-hmm. i've touched on it and some things i've done but it's certainly like his work hasn't been like a primary focus for me like other things have been but there are people that can handle that aspect of it i for mean sure. There's a documentary that I was in years ago, Doc of the Dead, and the guys that did that, I think it's Exhibit A Pictures that did that a few years ago, did a documentary, 7852, that was just about the making of the shower scene in Psycho. And it's like, if you want incredibly complex deep dive exploration, you can find it. What we can provide is our perspective and and, uh, what we think. Which I think has value. Yeah. I hope. Or else we wouldn't be doing this at all. <laughs> and somebody's listening, so there you go. Thank you. So so this episode, we're focusing on some classics, and it kind of came about like just randomly as we've been ramping up watching stuff for October and realized we could try to slot in an episode between a couple things we'd already planned. We've seen The Birds together several times. Mm-hmm. It had always been a movie I liked, but I think I've gained more respect for it recently than I ever had before, and I included it in a crucial section of my book, Journey of the Living Dead, and I'll share that with everybody when we get to that. But uh, to pair it, we couldn't have picked a better pairing because we also, within the space of days, just caught Psycho again. And again, this is a movie where I don't think I ever considered it like an all-time favorite, but I like it a lot. I respect its position in history, and I think my appreciation for this, too, has grown mm-hmm. as I've gotten older. So for this episode, we're going to be doing the double feature from Hitchcock that followed one after the other, 1960 to 1963, with drastically different production values in terms of the kinds of productions he used to represent both stories, Psycho and The Birds. And they both, as we discovered while watching them again this time in close proximity, they're very closely connected thematically with a lot of avian uh, symbolism. Mm-hmm. So they are a great pairing. Well, I run the office and uh, tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother, the one she allows I might be capable of doing. Do you go out with friends? Well, a a boy's best friend is his mother. I think right off the bat, and I mean, like we always say, full spoilers. I don't know if you need to know that for movies from the 60s, but... Norman is the killer. Oh, well, there it is. (laughs) Sorry. He's dressing as his mother. We just, you know... Do you not know that already? It's... 
I, I don't know. I remember a couple years ago around this time reading an article that was about Hitchcock. And it might have even been related to the documentary mm-hmm. um, that you just mentioned or whatever it was. But at the top of the article, it made a point of saying, like, spoiler alert. Like, this article will discuss, like, the the plot of, of Psycho. I mean, here's the thing. There is an aspect of this, and I think we've dealt with it in the past I think we've gotten to the point now where our our general approach is, look, the way we talk about these things, we got to talk about everything. Mm-hmm. So we're doing full spoilers. Although occasionally I think we've tried to be more cagey about it with more recent films. So if they haven't seen it yet. Like once or twice. Yeah. But and and I can understand there's also an argument to be made that for every new audience that comes along, they might encounter Psycho for the first time. And isn't that great? You know, younger audiences finding this classic and watching it. You've been seeing a lot of movies with me you've never seen before. Wouldn't want to necessarily be spoiled and know everything ahead of time to get the full impact. But also, I think it's just common sense at this point. If you're talking about a classic like this from 1960 that is so indelible in pop culture, you're not going to necessarily avoid it. Yeah, I mean, this is one that has branched out and become a reference point in so much other media that I don't think you could watch it now not knowing yeah. how it ends but in any case i digress greatly <laughs> but um what i was gonna say was that in this particular viewing i think you and i right off the bat noticed just how much of the movie we often somehow miss when we catch a showing of it on television that like watching it making a concerted effort to watch it and put the movie on and watch it from the beginning. The point somehow always when we're turning on the television and psycho is on, we always seem to come in at a point that's actually closer to halfway through the movie that what you think of as psycho as the meat of this movie really is the back half of it, that there's actually like a a whole crime thriller essentially that's happening before it becomes a horror movie. And I know one of the things when we watched it this time, I was just saying casually while we're watching it, it's absolutely impossible to recapture today, especially if you've seen it a lot, the impact it must have had to feel like you had the world slip out from under you when the movie you've been watching the whole time turns out not to be the movie it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And that Janet Lee is not your star. I mean, she is, but not after a certain point. Like, everything changes. And that's an extraordinary sleight-of-hand trick that Hitchcock does that now has itself become a trope, you know, to the point where even as as recently as something like we're very excited and focused on, like, your favorite horror franchise with the Scream films, which we've already covered before in the, the end of Doctor of the Dead, uh, and now there's the new Scream coming, which we'll surely be talking about. Oh, yes. But I mean, like, they made as a virtue the idea of that first film, putting Drew Barrymore in the beginning of that film. Putting was, her on the posters. She was on the poster, right. And the, and that was so much a Marion Crane, Janet Lee kind of trick, only they did it within, like, the space of, what, like, the first 10, 15 minutes at yeah. most. And Marion lasts for quite a while, and you're watching her story, you're getting emotionally invested in it. You know, she wants to go back and make good on having stolen the money. And you, like you said, there's this whole like criminal and psychological intrigue going on of, you know, a woman who's never, you get the impression, never done anything that 
illegal or awful before. She's probably never even done anything selfish before. Yeah. Is the implication I get. That, like, she is so, I guess, so focused on not just being good, like, being a good citizen, but being supportive to other people and, like, being sort of the rock that other people rely on and not really doing things for herself ever yeah and then she winds up being our victim that reveals that something horrific is going on at the bates motel and suddenly that's the story and in many respects norman really becomes the central character and not her but to do that to an audience in 1960 I can't even imagine what that must have felt like to be surprised by that. Because, I'm almost kind of jealous. Yeah. Because even the first time I ever saw Psycho, I knew that it was, in essence, a slasher movie. Yeah. Eventually. We grew up knowing this movie. But to yeah. to not know that and to think that this is sort of a, a crime caper, um, which it kind of is for quite some time, like a good chunk of the movie and a good one at that mm -hmm. because it's very much centered around marion and you are getting things from her point of view that she's wildly in love with a man who she could be with and that he is divorced he's certainly not with anyone so it's not exactly like he's cheating on anyone to be with her but that's the other thing too is how much this movie for the time was among many things why this movie is so indelible for people and so important is it was a shocking shift in the willingness of a film to actually discuss things like people and say having an affair in sort of the classic sense, not having an affair on anyone who's married, but you know, having having a they've checked a into a hotel with an hourly rate. Yeah, and they're still like trying to keep it secretive in a way, like they feel like this is improper. And even the opening sequence with her and her bra, and then there's another sequence later with her and her bra to say nothing of the shower scene was a huge deal at the time. And and not only that, but two it's not just implied because it's obvious that it had to happen to 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 start the movie with the scene with her with the bra and he's putting his clothes and you know that they had sex to actually acknowledge just adult behavior was very unusual and and uh a, a, an incredible shift in tone for film in general and not just that they just had sex but that they do this often basically whenever he's in town because she talks about how she really has to stop taking such long lunch breaks that like things are they're going to notice at work that they both know how this whole hotel works that they he's not they can't stay longer it's the kind of place where when your hours up you vacate it's also you know now that i think of it it's there's an aspect of this too among the many themes that you could tease out of this movie there's uh, kind of what I feel might be a kind of offensive undercurrent here too in the sense that Hitchcock and knowing what we know about Hitchcock being obviously a pretty deviant guy not in terms of depicting this but in terms of the way he treated his female leading ladies and 
you know, and, and was very abusive toward them. And, and that happens quite a bit with Tippi Hedren in the next one that you could almost argue the movie kind of is showing you that Marion pays the price for being sexually liberated, for being, I mean, like in a way she's paying the price for like, she did the crime and in a way she's not paying a price for anything because it's a matter of coincidence and it's Norman who's attracted to her and whose mother personality will not allow him to act on that and all those things. But if you just look at like themes and like subtext and symbolism, is it not a bit disturbing, though, that Marion gets killed after we see everything about her, including the relationships he's ha she's having? Does that then mean the film is kind of saying, well, she gets what she deserves? I'm not sure. And again, honestly, I've never read as much about this as some people might have. So. I'm not sure either. The only thing I will say is that it's very clear to me that the man that she's in this relationship with does love her and she loves him. I mean, when we finally cut to him in sort of the back of the hardware store where he lives, he's writing her a letter, mm -hmm. like a love letter. I mean, he wants to be with her. He also is sort of one of those people where it seems like he is not going to marry her until he is in sort of the stable situation he feels like she deserves to be in for marriage. And it doesn't feel like a line. Like it doesn't feel like yeah, that's something he line. tells her. It's often yeah. a line in movies like this. But you don't like fly into Phoenix. <laughs> like just to like see someone that you're casually seeing because he could have found someone, you know, back home in California yeah. to, to be with in that way. So you get the impression that they both sort of care very much for each other. They met at a point in their lives where she's not doing well enough that she could offer essentially to flip their their gender roles of the time and, and be the breadwinner. She doesn't quite make that much. Sounds like she still lives with her sister and neither of them, I guess are, are with anyone. And he is trying to pull his life together, that he has debts, that he still pays alimony to his ex. And that if he got married again, I, that's the part's unclear to me. It's like either if he gets married again or his if that his ex-wife gets married again, then the alimony stops. If the ex-wife gets married again, the alimony stops. So yeah. it's one of those, like, you know, he's kind of, he's paying her all the money that he could be spending to pay down his other debts. And you get the feeling that all of that is true. That there is, like, a real sort of financial quagmire that they're all stuck in. And it's not that anyone's really going farther into debt it's just that everybody's spinning their wheels and nobody can move forward with their lives well, of course all this is basically set up for the rest of the movie and mm -hmm. you know her entire situation turns out not to be a red herring per se but to be a bit of sleight of hand like i was saying before like you think you're watching a movie about marion crane and her moral and ethical situation and you know what's going to happen with them and then it turns out no it's not about that at all really it's about norman and what she brings out in him 
that then leads us to figure out that mystery. And of course, everyone who's looking for her, her sister, Vera Miles' character, Lila, and we mentioned John Gavin as Sam Loomis, which of course his character name inspires John Carpenter to call his character Dr. Loomis, Sam Loomis. So, I mean, it's also, there's so much in this movie that gets into the DNA of horror in general. Then you get your private eye who comes into town. Martin Balsam, who we see more (laughs) often as the main villain in Mitchell, but... Well, I love in that too. I like Martin Balsam in just about anything he's ever been in that I've seen him in. But I think his performance as Arbogast, man who doesn't even pronounce his last name like anybody with that name would pronounce it, <laughs> at least not that I think of, is one of my favorite performances of his. And I guess we just cover that now too, because he comes in and he's like a kind of like coming in almost sort of from a film noir. He doesn't trust anybody. He certainly doesn't trust the boyfriend. Or the sister. When he first talks to the boyfriend and the sister, he is leaning on the counter at such an extreme angle that you think, could you be more casual? And he says, give me like 15 more degrees of casual and I'm going to I'm going to lay it out here. But my favorite, I think my favorite thing in this movie in general are conversations. There are conversations in this movie that have some of my favorite acting choices ever. And one of them is the conversation he has with Anthony Perkins Norman where it quickly goes from mildly uncomfortable to extremely uncomfortable. And some of Balsam's expressions, like my favorite part, which cannot be conveyed on a podcast, is like when it's clearly getting to the point where even Norman is saying, I don't want to talk to you anymore. And he's saying, well, well, will I need a warrant if I want to get, and he just got, mm, okay. And he has like these little nods and everything. And it's just like, it's so good. You know, sick old women are usually pretty sharp. Can I just, uh, Mr. Just Mr. Mr. Arbogast, I wouldn't disturb uh, I think I've, I think I've talked to you all I want to. Yes, but so, just for... I think it'd be much better if you left now. Thanks. Well, all right. You sure would save me a lot of legwork if you let me talk to her. Would I need a warrant for that, too? Sure. Uh-huh. All right. Thanks, anyway. He's wonderful. And then, of course, he has one of the most iconic scenes, which itself was a technical marvel of the time of him going down the steps and... So he's great. Um, I mean, everybody in this is superb. He's kind of a pre-Columbo Columbo. Yeah, I mean, he's he really is. He's like a Columbo who unfortunately goes horribly awry here. Um, <laughs> but he's got this way of talking to people where he can come off like he's like agreeing with you before you even say something of like, you know, like setting you up to tell him what he wants to hear, but you think you're telling him the thing that he thinks that is not the truth. It's all very yeah. twisty. It's He's very a great nice. Character. I wish he were in it more. And I, and uh, I wish that at a time where, you know, they didn't think of these things, they could have done, you know what? We could do a prequel series of all the things Arbogast was doing before he did the fateful trip to the Bates Motel. Mm-hmm. But now, and, and the thing is we were talking about DNA. I mean, obviously this movie looms large in horror history because Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates is one of the great horror thriller characters of all time. First of all, we should point out, and I don't think we needed to go through the whole plot synopsis because everybody knows this, I think. I know. I think maybe Um, it's just worth saying only because we tend to forget about the crime part of it. This is is why I wanted to go through it a little bit because also to answer your question of is Hitchcock setting it up to seem like Marion deserves it? 
I don't think so. I think Hitchcock is just very obsessed with like sad sack characters mm. who no matter what they do are never going to change their fate of being a sad sack. Can't get out of their private traps. They can't get out of their private traps. Yeah. And I think that that's what he gets at more so mm. that like she tried to change her destiny to be in a different track. Like yeah. she tried to be a different person and the problem was she could only ever be the person she was going to be. And that person was sad. And while I haven't ever seen it, like I've said before, I sometimes like to just read about other things in pop culture just to know. But obviously this movie not only has a huge impact on history of horror, but has itself spawned not just a franchise, but multiple iterations, including a recent very successful TV series that eventually... That started in the early earlier years of the relationship between Norman and his mother and eventually caught up to and incorporated a retelling of Psycho. And everybody was wondering, what are they going to do when they get to that? And they went way afield of the film. And basically, mm -hmm. one thing they did was they had Rihanna come in as Marion Crane in that season. And if I remember right, she did not get killed, but someone else does. So they did like an alternate universe version of Psycho. But it's based on a 1959 Robert Block novel, which I've never read. One of many things inspired by Ed Gein. So you can put this in the list with Texas Chainsaw and many other things that that was you know, inspired by a true crime thing. And as Scream 4 very conveniently provided for us, this is the movie which together the same year with the British film Peeping Tom are considered two of the quintessential proto-slasher films that inspire that genre to develop, and actually the giallo to develop as well, prior to the 80s sort of boom in slashers. Name the movie that started the slasher craze. Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, or Psycho? Psycho! None of the above. Peeping Tom, 1960, directed by Michael Powell. First movie to ever put the audience in the killer's POV. What? I've only seen Peeping Tom once. It doesn't have, to me, the impact of Psycho, but maybe that's also just familiarity with Psycho. Yeah. But it all comes down ultimately with everybody else in it. And Janet Lee is also wonderful. Everybody's great in it. But it really all comes down to Anthony Perkins. And not I've, I've, made, I've made this cheeky reference before, but I mean this seriously now. So recently from ATB Publishing, we published the biography of Mick Garris, the horror director and writer and one of the things that Mick did early in his career was Psycho 4. He got to direct what was the fourth and final installment in the Psycho film series. That one, if I remember, is done on Showtime. It aired on Showtime. And Mick got to do that with Perkins. It was one of Perkins' last things ever. Uh, he was not well, apparently. I think, I think the story that's in the book is... Uh, Something about Perkins having a lunch at the time and saying, like, this is the this is all I'm going to ever be remembered for or something to that effect. And it's like this is the curse that comes up a lot with these things of being, you know, typecast for a character. He spent the rest of his life after this clearly fighting against the idea that he was just Norman and even returned to the character several more times because that was the opportunity that was there. But there's no denying that when you watch him as the young man he was in this, particularly, and actually all the Psycho sequels are pretty damn good, more than they have a right to be. Include two, three, all the way to four. Which is a lot, basically, to his credit. Yes, absolutely. And he isn't even in four much. He's kind of in a framing sequence in that, but he's great when he's in it. 
And it's it's also a very clever way to do both prequel and sequel in four. Mm-hmm. Um, but his performance in this is just phenomenal to watch. I'm always fascinated watching just his face. We You were pointing out several things this time, like the set of his jaw in any given scene. Whenever he is frustrated or angry or doesn't want to talk about something... He does this amazing thing where he starts clenching his jaw to the point where you can see his cheekbone pop out. Mm-hmm. And there's just no denying that literally every single moment that Anthony Perkins is on screen is electric. I mean, he acts with every like inch of his body. Everything. Yeah. You mentioned like his walk up the stairs is is you it's not normal. It's like clearly calculated in the way he almost like sashays up the stairs. Well, you can see too that like even when he is dressed as himself and not as his mother, his the physical walk that he uses when he is sort of in a transitional period between himself and his mother, or has just come from one and from the other. It's amazing. You like, can tell. The moment yeah. he like he walks back up to the house as his mother. Like once you know in the end. Yeah, when, like, once you see it again. Once you see right. it again, you know that he's he's just finished covering up the crime and like he's walking up to the house as his mother with a very different gait, a completely different posture. And he walks in the house and almost like shakes her off and suddenly becomes a completely different silhouette. And this is all just being filmed from behind. You're just mm-hmm. seeing the back of his head. So there's not even a facial movement involved in it. And yet he can telegraph at any given moment which personality his body is sort of full of at that point it reminds me by the way one of the people that also crops up in mick's book is henry thomas mm. who a lot of people obviously remember most as elliot from et but he plays young norman bates in psycho four so he's the norman that we see who actually winds up killing you know his mother and her boyfriend mm-hmm. and all that and i think there's a bit in, in the book where he talks about how he didn't really interact with perkins much i think they had like one lunch together or one talk before they started working but he tried to pick up on like his physicality, his walk, his thing. He really studied that to like carry that through, which to me also just underscores that as opposed to many other performances, even good ones, there's not necessarily obvious stuff you can key in on. Mm-hmm. Perkins has a lot of obvious body language stuff that he's doing that Thomas could then say, OK, I want to try to walk like that or I'll do that. And that that's Norman. And so it's it's really clear that whether he was making these choices in the moment or whether these were crafted beforehand, he's really creating a character. It's no wonder that sometimes these things stand the test of time because it's an amazing bit of work. Not only that, but he is so awkwardly charming. Yes. Like as Norman. I remember the last time you and I watched this together... Um, it was a time that Psycho was on TCM, I think earlier this year or last year. And incidentally, when we watched The Birds this time, we caught it on TCM. So yeah. it kind of brings it full circle. But we were watching it and I was sort of 
watching along with people live tweeting it. Oh, like, yeah. Their reactions to it. And I had this moment where I'm watching and I kind of turned to you and I was like, you know, Norman's not such a bad guy. <laughs> and like you kind of gave me this look like you do realize that he's a serial killer and like he's murdered several people, has multiple personalities, you know, killed his own mother. And it's like, this is all true. But, <laughs> but. in the moments when he is genuinely free to be himself like when he feels free of like the grip of his mother's ghost essentially when he's free to be himself you just think you know this is a guy who means well i mean he's sweet he's odd very odd um he's an awkward lonely guy and but in a way that's not at all like worrisome like it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable it's not like it doesn't send off the warning bells that's the dynamic when when he tries desperately to get a date basically Mm -hmm. like this is a guy who never gets to act on anything with a woman of course there's another subtext aspect to this knowing that tony perkins was well fluid because he definitely was not gay. That was another thing that came up is that he was bi. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, he was bi because he had a long-term marriage and 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 not a sham in any way. No, Apparently a, a very marriage. healthy, loving relationship, but also had affairs with men. And There's a lot of bi erasure in yeah. pop culture and especially in sort of the culture that's like pre-90s. Yeah. But you could also read a lot into, in a negative way, I'm sure, too. The, and I think we've talked, well, we talked about this when we watched, watched some of the slashers that came mm. after Psycho. How there's also a slasher trope of the guy dressed in woman's clothes as a killer. Mm-hmm. And therefore creating a negative, like, demonized stereotype of transvestism, trans, someone who's gender fluid. The, this is something that crops up again and again. And of course, you can't argue that Norman as mother is... A major source for that figure and then if you add in knowing what you know about perkins for real one of the things i start to see more often now is 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 norman's fascination with her not truly a fascination with her but the fact that he's sublimating other things and trying desperately to reach out to another human being sexually or otherwise and then getting back to your idea about him not seeming threatening the whole part where he tries to tell her, well, I bring some food and he doesn't want to go in her room, which is almost a vampire kind of moment, although she invites him in. She does. But he doesn't want to go in there because now that's become her place. So instead, let's go in the, the parlor and everything. It's like he's so awkward and yet seemingly non-threatening and letting her run it all. And and it just doesn't until that conversation really starts to get darker. It just doesn't seem like he's any problem. Well, it also that conversation gets darker, but also he manages to sort of deftly steer it back around again of like getting upset about saying, you know, people always say, you know, that place or or say, like, put her somewhere, yeah, somewhere, someplace. Yeah. And, you know, gets upset about it, but then kind of caps it off by saying, but, you know, sometimes I say that myself, it's, it's, too. Yeah. And it's a beautiful recovery. I love that's the conversation, by the way, that's my number one favorite sequence. in the It's movie. amazing. And it's so 
real and so raw and so human. And mm-hmm. it's basically two people who are absolutely lost mm-hmm. having a conversation with each other. And over the course of that conversation, both realizing how lost they are. It's just that Marion is equipped to do something about it to say, I'm going to put myself back on the path I should be on. You know, I I lost my way here, but I can see the way back and I'm going to try to set it right. And he's not capable of seeing a way through or a way out or a way to a different path or whatever it might be. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? In a way, it almost is worse in the way it stigmatizes mental illness, more so in the way perhaps that it stigmatizes like cross-dressing or gender fluidity or whatever it might be, because he is somebody who very clearly has had a very traumatic existence. He was certainly traumatized like by his mother growing up and it led to a point where he basically had a break Mm -hmm. and in the midst of that essentially developed a split personality. And if he had gotten treatment, even after the double murder, if he had gotten treatment rather than basically getting away with it and then not figuring out that he was the cause then who knows what would have happened. And the thing is, during the course of the series, he gets treatment. Mm. It just doesn't necessarily yeah. work great all the time. No, you, it's, it is fascinating. And like I said, we've we, you got to see the other ones. They're mm-hmm. all worth it. None of them are classic like the first one. But straight through to four, they're all worth it. And uh, particularly elements two and three are fascinating because you definitely see Norman as well as he's ever going to be. And it's just that life keeps conspiring to pull him back in, so to speak. One more thing I will add about him sort of dressing as his mother, like with the wig and like the dress, ultimately, as we find out with the hairstyle. I really feel like that is more so something that Hitchcock felt like had to be done in order to trick the audience into thinking the actual mother was committing the crime throughout the first part of like the crime half of the, or the murder, I guess the murder crime half, as opposed to the theft crime half of the movie. Now you're into the murder crime half of the movie, but that clearly sort of based on what I've described about him, And his walk and like her being present in him, whether or not he's dressed as her, that split personality does not rely on him putting the outfit on. If he's having a conversation with her, he's not like putting the wig and the dress on and talking and then ripping it off and then talking again. And like you said, we see some of the shifts that happen in him that we're interpreting as there's mother and he's not putting anything on. I mean, even right in the very end with him 
yeah. sitting in the interrogation room and them basically saying like there is no trace of him like there's only mother in there and he's not dressed as her he's no. just him and so i think it's basically an unfortunate byproduct of feeling like you need to trick the audience in that way or maybe just that there was just something that maybe either Hitchcock couldn't envision himself or didn't think audiences could go along with because when you're when you're doing that whole shower scene of her being killed and that's you know you see as the audience that shadow outline of like the mother's hair yeah and there could have been a way to do that in which like that is sort of the tell to the audience that it's the mother inside of him as the shadow and just play with shadow and silhouettes and things but there's really just no way i guess he could conceive of to do that because you also then actually have characters in the film who think they see the mother up in the house because they've seen her and so then the implication is he's walking around the house wearing her clothes but then he's like walking out the front door like 10 seconds later not wearing her clothes yeah and like some of that doesn't quite mesh up well it's a clunky uh motif Mm -hmm. to sort of give hitchcock the chance to set up a mystery which leads to an even clunkier point which is the bit that i would cut Oh my God, Which yeah. is quite a thing I know for some people to hear about a movie like Psycho. But yes, if I had an opportunity, I would edit the hell out of the ending of this movie because the ending with Simon Oakland as the psychiatrist. Who we've never met until this point. Yeah, is, and I mean, Simon Oakland, I mean, you might not, but Simon Oakland, he's great in a lot of things. And uh, if I remember right, he's the boss, he's the editor in uh, Kolchak. But anyway. So, I mean, it's not him. It's a thankless task. This is in the category of thankless tasks for actors. <laughs> and and clearly, and I don't know, maybe somebody's written far more in depth about this, and I'm theorizing something that everybody already knows who's a massive Psycho fan. It feels like a sequence that only exists because somebody at the studio or even maybe Hitchcock himself thought, you know, people are so stupid. We're going to need to make sure we lay all this out for everybody so they understand what happened. So at the end of the movie, after everything, You get this five-minute extended thing where Oakland just walks around the room in a very mannered and, I find, extremely grating monologue, describes in exhaustive detail what the dynamic is, how Norman is also the mother, how he's transitioning between each personality. He was never all Norman, but he was often only mother. And because he was so pathologically jealous of her, he assumed that she was as jealous of him. Therefore, if he felt a strong attraction to any other woman, the mother's side of him would go wild. When he met your sister, he was touched by her, aroused by her. He wanted her. That set off the jealous mother, and mother killed the girl. And he says, you know, I got this from the mother, and we were joking this last time. It's like, it's quite an in-depth conversation he apparently just had with her, because the level of detail he's sharing with us, is, and it's just, it almost is offensive in the sense, it's like, I get it. I get all of that. I don't need to be told all this. 
And then I think, well, you know, like we've talked about many times, there are people who probably would, at the end of the movie, would have said, I don't understand, was he, was that him then? And maybe they did need that. But the result is, after a movie that's so expertly crafted and so visually arresting and performances that are so nuanced and the music, Bernard Herrmann's score, which is itself this, you know, monumental uh, achievement in horror scoring in film. That has been much borrowed since. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Reanimator. So um, all of that, you then get this sequence at the end that feels totally out. And the other interesting thing about it is, is anybody that knows stuff about Psycho already knows, I'm not telling you anything new, is how one of the things he did to get this movie made was that even though he'd done North by Northwest as a full color film, the next one, The Birds, full color film. This one he did in black and white and he used his television crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents to basically convince them he can make the movie by saving tons of money and do it on a very low budget. So it's done with a TV crew. The Simon Oakland scene is the only scene in the movie that feels like it's from a TV show. And that really comes through in that sequence. And I would just chop that out completely. Take a knife to it. The movie can end with him getting taken into custody in the house, in the wig and the dress. And... Yeah, in fact, you could even shift his final bit as mother to the house if you wanted to. He could be sitting in the car, in the police car. Yeah. There and do that and then avoid going into the station at all. Or even just in the parlor while the police mill around. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you, you know, the only thing that I'd say. We're fixing psychos for doing that. Sorry. <laughs> it, it does. It feels so forced, though, that whole speech. The only thing from that sort of police station scene that I think is worth saving or working in somehow is the fact that they sort of drop the knowledge there that there were at least two other women yeah. who have gone missing in recent years that they think could possibly have befallen the same fate that Marion did. And I that's still, worth knowing as a viewer. I still feel like they could have worked that into something like an aftermath police investigation thing happening yeah, at the house. There has to be something yeah. else they could have done to include that info and yes it would also mean losing ted knight's blink and you miss it cameo as the cop who's standing at the door but you know that's all right um, um so i mean yeah. yeah it feels forced and especially because suddenly in this like clearly small town community where everybody knows everybody and suddenly you have somebody who is there as like a psychiatrist interrogator expert on multiple personalities. And it's just, it feels like, like, where did he come from? <laughs> like, did they just have him on speed dial of like, just in case we have any multiple personality crimes or crimes that involve someone dressing up as their dead mother that they murdered. We got this guy. We keep his number tacked up to the bulletin board just in case. And by the way, there's also some ho additional Hollywood royalty in here that I always like to point out. Another great performance, although he's in it a very short time, is John McIntyre as the deputy sheriff. It's like small town where it's like Norman's their old buddy that he's calling, you know, the kid of an old buddy. I mean, you know, it feels like almost fatherly the way mm -hmm. he is. And McIntyre, I mean, he had a massive career, a lot of Westerns. 
Uh, but what's interesting is, and I, I know I never remember this off the top of my head, so this is coming from looking it up. But uh, the mother's voice is three different people at different times during the movie mm. that was like mixed and changed in order to keep you off balance. But one of the people who did the voice of the mother was John McIntyre's wife. They were married in the 30s and were married their entire lives together. They were like one of these Hollywood couples that went all decade after decade together. It's Jeanette Nolan. One of the things I remember from my childhood, and here's the way that these weird six degrees things happen. Right. Is we were just talking about Henry Thomas, who's Elliot and E.T. One of his less successful movies that came just a couple years after E.T. was a movie I loved as a kid called Cloak and Dagger. Mm -hmm where he's a kid who accidentally gets a hold of a brand new cartridge video game for his Atari or whatever fake system they had in the movie that just happens to have a chip in it that foreign agents are after that they were using the video game cartridge to hide. And he has an estranged relationship with his father, Dabney Coleman, who he imagines as an imaginary character. It was Jack Flack, I think. He's like this, like the version of his father he wished existed, like a hero. And he and his imaginary friend, his better version of his father, have to face off against enemy agents and save the day. And the big, one of the big surprises is two of the enemy agents are the very kindly old couple that keep helping him, John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan. <laughs> and they wind up actually being the ones who are trying to get the thing back to Russia or wherever. It's such a great, fun, very 80s movie. It sounds it. Now, do you mind telling us what this is all about? After all, I sacrificed my good camera to save your cloak and dagger tape. It isn't just a cloak and dagger tape. There's an extra microchip in here. Well, what was that man doing with it at the Alum? Said he had to give it to some foreign spy. No. Really? Did he say what the spy looked like? Only that he had two fingers missing. How but whenever I see John McIntyre, I think, oh, the two of them. And Jeanette Nolan is in here. You just see, you just hear her a little bit. She, I don't even know where exactly. But sometimes it's the voice. So I don't know what else is there. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously there's a well, lot. Well, I mean, we could, we could talk forever about it. But I do think basically there's really only two other points that I think are worth noting. And the first is that watching it, from the beginning and getting like the origins of this crime caper that's going to happen with the money theft. One of the things that really struck me watching it this time is how gross and unlikable and disgusting the man is who she's essentially stealing the money from. Oh, I mean, oh. she's stealing it from her boss really. So, I mean, and he right. seems like a, a nice enough guy, but you know, you have this, like, clearly, like, sort of cowboy magnet type guy whose daughter's getting married and he's going to buy her a house as a present and he just plonks down the cash. Like, he just lays out $40,000 cash and just throws it on the table and then, like, really grossly and obviously and disgustingly tries to pick up Marion. Yeah. Just like sitting on her desk with a stack of cash in front of her. Like, it's just gross. It's very gross. It's very uncomfortable. And meanwhile, her boss is in the background basically giving her this look like, don't screw up this deal. 
because, you know, he needs the deal to go through and he's had to also deal with this disgusting guy like all afternoon, it seems. And he's probably going to have to keep dealing with him because they're about to go drink in the boss's office and like, don't say or do anything, Marion, because we need this this real estate purchase to go through. Although the, the cash buy is very unorthodox, maybe we should just go ahead and put that in the bank. And I think... The reason I I bring it up is that it kind of speaks to the fact that right in the beginning, from the audience's perspective, you're on Team Marion. You're like, screw this guy. Like, take his money. You're not taking money from somebody who needs it. It's not like she it's not like she worked in the bank and like some little old lady came in to deposit like all of her life savings or like life insurance money. And instead of doing it, she just put it in her purse and went home. Like, this guy is a grade-A jerk, and he's treating everyone around him like crap. And she's, like, that's, I think, really what seals it for Marion. Because she thinks, of all the people I could steal money from, I feel the least guilty stealing it from this guy. And it's like the light bulb goes off of, like, I'm putting this in my purse, and I'm just going to leave town. And, like, good luck finding me. Now, here's what's fascinating. We had that reaction to him. We were watching this last time. Mm -hmm. And while you were doing that right now, I was just looking it up because I couldn't remember. Well, who did play him? Mr. Cassidy, Tom Cassidy. I was looking it up. And then I looked up and here's one of these things. I have never known this before. I only just found out this minute while looking him up. And it's an amazing thing to me when I discover the things I've grown up my whole life with, I never knew were connected. So the smarmy... The guy with the cowboy hat in Psycho is Frank Albertson, who died remarkably young, and yet Matt does not look young. So he obviously lived hard. Mm -hmm. He was 55 when he died four years after Psycho. Yikes. Yeah. And he already looks like he's in his 60s in Psycho. He does. But already some people listening to this might already be ahead of me. But Frank Albertson had an enormous career that goes back to the 1920s. Most people know him best as one of the beloved characters from It's a Wonderful Life. He's Sam Wainwright, the character that George Bailey is one of his friends from home who winds up going on to New York, becoming a huge success, makes tons of money, keeps asking George to come work with him. He won't because he wants to stay in the town. And at the end is the one who wires him tons of money to save the savings and loan and save the day. He's the good hearted guy who's become a millionaire. Hee-haw, Sam Wainwright calling. And then, for me as a kid, I knew him less from It's a Wonderful Life and more as the fact that years before It's a Wonderful Life, he is Leo Davis, the struggling playwright who the Marx Brothers help in room service in 1938. And again, a lovable little character, guy that's like, oh, you want to help him. And I cannot believe now that he's the one that's that guy in Psycho. That's incredible. For an audience of the time who maybe was particularly familiar with It's a Wonderful Life, I don't know. The thing is, I've actually never seen it. He looks nothing like... I mean, I can't imagine you'd even recognize him. The the movie has never really appealed to me conceptually, so I've never really wanted to watch it. But I just have to wonder, too, if some of that was sort of an intentional thing, either to try to, like, put people kind of off kilter of, like, somebody they're used to seeing as, like, a nice guy being an absolute jerk and make it feel 
viscerally more awkward. Yeah. And for all I know, he played a lot of jerks at that point. Or is it just know. a situation where like he wanted to play a jerk? Because sometimes you get that with people who only ever play nice characters and they get a chance to play a villain and they just jump on it. But at least that's the way I know him. And who knows? Again, he, he had a prolific career, yeah. so he could have played plenty of terrible characters. But my perception of him from that, from his younger days, was of being a nice guy. What's amazing to me in all of this is that it's such a brilliant move on the part of Hitchcock to make it from the beginning so that you want Marion to succeed. It's like you want her to get away with this caper, with stealing this money so that she can be with the man she loves and get married. And she's able to do it by taking the money away from somebody you very instantly feel doesn't deserve to have it. And in a sense, you feel like her boss doesn't deserve to have it either for being willing to do business with somebody that reprehensible. It's also interesting that from modern perspective, now I watch this with a very different eye because when the cop starts following her, he does already seem sinister and a threat in the movie as I think it stood even then. But now I watch it and I think he really comes across as a threat mm-hmm. and dangerously like stalking even before he had any reason to necessarily. I know I said I had two things before, but I'll add a third one as you say that. This time watching it very distinctly, I got the feeling like the cop wasn't real. I got this distinct feeling like the cop was her guilt chasing her down. Oh, that's weird. He's like parked we across the street them? watching. He pulls over into the lot. He's standing behind. But the car dealer is talking to the mechanic. He's not talking to the cop. Do we never actually see we him We never talking? see him talk to anyone other than her. By the way, I love John Anderson. That's another thing. I love seeing him in this movie. Always great. And I I get the feeling of... Wow, that's something I would never have thought of. And especially because he is so sinister and he is following her for no clear reason. Because ultimately she disappears, but the cops aren't involved. No one reports her missing and the detective, Arbogast, he never makes mention of the police saying that she had you know traded in her car that she was behaving erratically Did he never mentioned not that? once i don't remember and okay. so it feels very much like it's this extraordinarily dark metaphor for like her guilt following her wow that's something i never have thought of so that's that's my read on he's creepy he's very creepy it's very creepy and I, I do feel like he's it's like the motorcycle cop in night of the comet very much so yeah so, I mean, I can chew on that, everyone. And for all I know, other people have talked about this a lot elsewhere. I have not done a lot of no, we're coming scholarly to from, reading. From our fresh perspective, um, what it is. So, But then the last thing I would want to talk about, which I guess is sort of our transition into why we decided to pair these two movies together, is that there really is an unmistakable bird theme throughout the film her name is marion crane she winds up in the clutches of a guy that stuffs birds like he stuffed his mother 
Mm-hmm. He makes the very dark joke about her, like you know, not not like a stuffed bird. Some there's a joke in there at one point where he basically flat out is saying that he stuffed her like a bird, but didn't. Yeah, you know, he makes mention of Marion eating like a bird, and then saying like you don't even really know what that means. It's just something people say, yeah. and you know, being trapped in our private cages and he eats the candy like a bird eating feed i've always and then there's nibbles there's that one shot that's really bizarre when he cranes his head in Mm -hmm. and the camera follows like under his chin as he comes in it's just a bizarre take that's very bird-like essentially there's just a lot of both sort of overt and subtle bird metaphor both Mm -hmm. in the visuals in the dialogue and how people describe Norman and how he describes Marion in the literal stuffed birds in some of the camera angles there is this sort of like literal bird's eye view of the house when he comes in and goes to the bedroom is supposedly arguing with the mother but you don't see inside the bedroom instead the camera shot is up overhead at the top of the stairs and you're seeing the door to the bedroom and you, the audience now suddenly are becoming this bird that's just looking down on everything. And then he carries her down the stairs and you don't know even at that point that he's just, he's carrying a corpse. Yeah. And there's just a lot of camera angles like that too, that kind of put either you, the viewer in the position of being a bird or portray the people who you're looking at as bird-like in some way. It's almost like the bird showed up in advance for Psycho and were on the walls everywhere. Or like the kernel of the idea was there. And then here we are with the birds in 1963, back to full color, back to what definitely looks like, you know, for the time anyway, a a Mm full-scale movie production. Not just that, but with an extraordinary amount of, at the time, cutting-edge special effects. Which, yes, one of the things we did mention we watched again this time is they don't all look so great now anymore, but they were still absolutely innovative to the extent that people genuinely didn't know how many. I mean, now you watch it and you think, well, I guess some people still wouldn't, but people like us sit and watch and go, okay, there's a composited shot, there's a rear projection, there's a thing like that. But evidently, audiences are like, how did this happen? How did you do it? And he kept it secret for years. But it was a combination of puppetry and real birds and composite shots and matte paintings and literally tying birds to people, tying birds to people. Yes. And and plant a healthy amount of actor abuse, which is stand a healthy of amount of bird abuse as with, well with Alfred Hitchcock and uh, based on a 1952 story by Daphne du Maurier and shot in the actual Bodega Bay, California, where it's set. Unlike a lot of movies, that's that threw us for a minute, too. And we looked it up like unlike a lot of movies where it's OK where is this really? And it's mm-hmm. like, no, it's in Bodega Bay. And many of the places are the same. And actually is a fun little thing where if you travel within an hour's distance in that area of California, you can see the Bodega Bay and then also locations from the fog. And I forget there was something else that you could also go see too. I, I looked it up and I saw I there's think like, maybe the town they used for Santa Mira. I think from um, I think maybe there were like three movies within the space of a couple hours mm-hmm. from each other. But so and the basic thing about this is Tippy Hedren is our, our lead. 
and she's a socialite who evidently has been living kind of a wild child lifestyle to some extent and she meets up with this lawyer who decides to like needle her a bit because he ran into her in court and because of a practical joke she'd been involved in that went awry and they wind up in this incredibly bizarrely designed soundstage set pet shop with multiple levels they're looking for lovebirds and she decides after he like tricks her into acting like she's working there and then then making her feel terrible that she's going to show him all right by following him to you know his family's home bodega bay and bring him some lovebirds except that all these things converge at, at the time where evidently the birds of the world have decided they've just about had enough and it's time to turn the tables on humanity. And if there's one thing I'll say from the outset is that as many things as there are that I'm sure we're about to say that's great about the birds and that's worth respecting, there's one thing we can say that's bad is that somewhere in the course of film history, we have to blame the birds for Shyamalan's The Happening <laughs> taking place <laughs> because that's where that came from, which is not a bad idea, just bad in execution. But The Birds is a phenomenal film, really, with great atmosphere. That's another thing, too. Psycho is a great movie to live in for a while. It's almost like one of our house movies, kind mm -hmm. of, sort of. A little bit. House in a motel. And The Birds has incredible atmosphere. Actually, if you don't mind my indulging for just another minute, mm -hmm. one of the things that came up once we started watching a lot of stuff together was I had never really seen the birds a lot. And I don't remember if we just saw it once at that point or a couple times, but my respect for it started growing as we saw it together. It's one that I love and have always loved, so I kind of watch it quite a bit. And then as I did more research for when I was working on my book, During the Living Dead, which was as one of its primary intentions was to pay homage to Night of the Living Dead and its 50th anniversary, and then also take a look at the history of zombie cinema, one of the things I started turning up more and more in research that I hadn't turned up years earlier mm. was how many people felt that the birds had a significant role to play in the road to Night of the Living Dead. And mm. when I did the chapter where I sort of did a sequence of films that lead to Night of the Living Dead... I included the birds, and I just wanted to share for people that don't have the book, which is still available from ATV Publishing, <laughs> by the way. Um, there's a section where I did on the birds, and I said that, you know, here, although many fans have recognized the major influence this film has had in the world of horror movies, and it's more mainstream status that often keeps it from being properly evaluated as a vital step in the evolution of the often marginalized horror genre, it's worth taking a minute to note how familiar certain elements of this film are in relation to night. Both films set up a situation in which the natural world has been upended, trapping a group of survivors in a house under siege by a deadly horde determined to consume them. Whether it's beaks and claws or grasping undead hands, the visual impact is the same. Both films feature a blonde female lead character rendered speechless and catatonic by traumatic events. And both films confront characters with a shocking, gory reveal that raises the stakes of the crisis. It's the farmer with his eyes pecked out in the birds, and the corpse at the top of the stairs in night. And unlike other movies that I listed in this whole section of the book, where you could theorize, well, did Romero or Rousseau or the other people at Image 10 see it? This was Hitchcock, and it was you know five years before it, they saw it. So 
the birds clearly has some elements in it that absolutely had to inspire and form Night of the Living Dead. Mm -hmm. And it has that under siege element in the third act that is so oppressive and some great horror. And the, and the, the part with the eyes pecked out is one of the most truly frightening looking images I've seen in a mainstream film that you, even today. And you, it just flashes for a yeah, second, really. It's really over the top and you can't believe that they're even doing it. And there it is. So, yes, I just wanted to share that part particularly. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, once you've seen it enough, you can definitely see its influence on a lot of things that came after it, especially anything that has anything to do with having a small town under siege from something, no matter what it is, whether it's zombies or... I don't know, random happenings that just keep happening. I mean, you can also see a lot of the like apocalyptic disaster movies, like the Roland Emmerich kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. This also has like a lot. It's not one of the most direct ones, and there are plenty of those kind of movies that existed before this, when worlds collide kind of movies. But like Day After Tomorrow. Yeah, but I mean, like the idea here is similar to Psycho too. Is that this movie builds for quite a while before it really gets to anything? Like really, the the first moment I think, if I remember right. Is it, I think it's the bird that attacks, that goes for her head when she's in the boat mm -hmm. to try to first find Mitch. I think that happens even before the bird that hits the door when she's staying with Annie. But there's like those early moments where it's like, oh, wait, something's going on. But until then, you got like this whole weird kind of like, like sexual tension by play between her and Rod Taylor yeah. and Mitch and... You get to know some of the town, and obviously, like, this whole town is enthralled to him. Like like you pointed out, what is this man's magnetism that every woman just goes there and stays there? Like, it turns <laughs> out Annie also used to live in San Francisco, where, um, where Melanie lives, and, like, dated Mitch for a while, and then they stopped seeing each other, so she just moved there <laughs> and became the only teacher in a one-room schoolhouse in the 60s which is also weird and his mother who was um you had another weird like jessica tandy awkward mother-son relationship father's out of the picture yeah and and weirdly oedipal thing happening her silhouette is very similar to mother it is mother bates mother but also it's like he keeps calling her darling it's so creepy it is very uncomfortable mm -hmm. and she's got that very cliched and and bizarre thing of like the mother who cannot countenance her son actually wanting any other woman but her it's like what are you planning to do exactly how do you expect to fulfill this relationship mm -hmm. you know he's like the surrogate father ever since they lost him but it's like it's it's hugely toxic and he doesn't seem to care at all well, he's someone who doesn't seem to care much about anything or anyone. And you really do have to wonder if not for the trauma event that they're all experiencing, would he and Melanie really have imprinted on each other in any kind of meaningful way beyond like a wild fling? It's hard to say. Well, you also can't predict whether this is a relationship that's ever going to continue beyond this into the apocalypse that's who knows? seemingly certain. There's also the really, just to jump to the end briefly, there's also like the horrific note that like when she is kind of turned into Barbara at the end mm -hmm. and catatonic and like shaken to her core and no longer the strong independent woman she was through the entire movie, 
that's when the mother is really happy. Like she finally has the daughter she can take care of. And she looks at her up at her like, yes, you're the mother who will take care of me now. But it looks more like an imprisonment situation. Which is also so weird because she does have a daughter. Like she has an 11 year old daughter. So it's not like she doesn't already have that in her life and have someone who needs her. But somehow she like needs more people to need her yeah. in that way. I don't know. Who's played by Veronica Cartwright, who granted is like two years away from being lost in space. So then she'll need uh, Tippi Hedren to stick <laughs> around. Um, but worth mentioning here, by the way, for for our listeners, as you mentioned, sort of the the, the start of all this, right? Like yeah. the bird swooping down on her in the boat and then the bird running into Annie's front door while they're in there and Annie's sort of saying, well, yeah, it happens sometimes and they lose their way and this and that. Well, literally just a couple days ago, like between the time we watched the movie and the time that we're sitting here recording this, I was sitting in our dining room and like doing some work because I work from home and I heard this thump and I thought, oh, maybe somebody like threw a package onto the front porch. Sometimes it happens. And like I walk to the front door and I open it and I look out and there's no package there. And I'm looking around. It's so weird. And while I'm standing there looking outside, a bird swoops at the front door, goes thwack against the glass of our storm door and then flies off again. And I realized that first thump was a bird flying into the door because at just the right time of day, at just the right angle of the sun it thought it saw like a rival bird coming after its nest in the tree in our front yard. And it was attacking itself in the reflection, but it was just such a bird's moment where I'm standing there looking. I was like, I wonder what that noise was. And then a bird was like, Rah! and like thwack against the door. And it's just like, no, 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 we're yeah. not doing this. When you told me my first reaction was now, like with everything else in the pandemic, are we going <laughs> to have to start protecting against bird attacks? We don't need this. Look. So, yeah, that's a side note to say, like, I yep. really hope this is not the start of something, because, um, no, please. They're attacking again. Well, Melanie, you stay in here. Come on, Al. It's extraordinary stuff. It's a very dark movie. The attacks on various there's the there's the scene where you find out that this farmer had his eyes gouged out. It's extraordinary to see that full screen, even for the second or two it's there. But then they also depict children being attacked by the birds and pecked at. And, and I have great respect for any movie absolutely. that is willing to go there because it's like a lot of movies shy away from showing children in peril. And it's like in a certain sense, both adults and children could benefit from seeing children in peril in a movie as part of the experience. And then there's also sequences like the one that I've seen used in documentaries to illustrate Hitchcock's approach to suspense, which was like the the clip, I think it may have been in Terror in the Isles that, that I remembered from, actually, now I think of it. But there's like the famous bit where he talked about it on television where he said, you know, the real trick of suspense is you show the audience the bomb under the table and then the two people just keep talking about baseball and the idea is the audience is going stop talking there's a bomb under there and there's that aspect in this movie and it's multi-layered because it's not just the audience aware it's all the other characters and it's the scene where they're in the diner watching the one guy at his car 
with the gas underneath it and he's about to light his cigarette and they're screaming, don't do that, don't do that. And it's like in the audience, we're thinking, yeah, don't do that. And meanwhile, he's about to blow himself up. Great moment. And yet it also has in that sequence, by the way, one thing I despise, which is this weird three quick cut take of her face looking in three different directions as the as the tension mounts. And I've never quite understood that sequence. I, I find that awkward. There's also another moment like that where she goes to the school um, and she is sitting on the bench outside the school. She being Melanie to Behedrin's character, sitting on the bench outside the school, getting ready to light a cigarette and just have herself a relaxing moment. And you kind of hear like a flutter and like gone. She looks up and there's a few birds sitting on the jungle gym and she's still like looking for the cigarette going to start. And then you, the camera cuts back and the entire playground is covered in birds. Now here's the thing about that though. And I, I feel like some people listening to this are going to be with me on this and ahead of me on it, which is you still haven't seen it yet. One of the only classic Mel Brooks movies you haven't seen is High Anxiety, which I love. It's one of my favorites. And High Anxiety is Mel Brooks's ode to Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. It's like a parody of like six or seven different Hitchcock movies all thrown together. And in one of the most famous visual sequences in that movie, the one that got huge attention because of just however the top it was, it's a scene where Thorndike's sitting on a bench and there's a thing behind him and the birds start flocking. Except that when he tries to get up and get away, the birds start chasing after him and dive bombing him in a way that is unique to birds being able to dive bomb you when they have such an opportunity until his coat is completely covered. It's a very crass and low-end kind of joke, but it was one of the ones that everybody remembered from High Anxiety to the point where when I see that sequence in The Birds, I can't quite get past the fact that I'm seeing the version from High Anxiety when I see that. You get to see the version in The Birds without that. So I kind of feel like that's kind of unfortunate for you and makes me not want to see High Anxiety because it's like, yeah, it's just such a, an amazing easy like so simple and yet effective way to build that instant feeling of dread yes it's like she looks up and the thing is within the movie it's not really entirely just for the audience i mean she realizes it too yeah definitely. like rather than stay and smoke her cigarette she was like oh i gotta get inside mm. and like stop annie from letting any of the kids outside so i mean it's a very effective scene and a very effective maneuver um and i just feel like it it really i think that is one of the real turning points when the action going forward starts to get more and more hectic the attacks are bigger and bigger because like you've seen at this point birds swoop in on the children's birthday party and fly in through the chimney in their house and you sort of feel like well they're at the sort of at the beach i mean they're kind of on the waterfront they got all this food outside maybe birds are gonna swoop down on on a party and but even, the more unnatural the behavior becomes yeah the more you realize and yeah. the more unsettling it is and i think that moment at the school is when it becomes extraordinarily unnatural and i do love the right to the end of the movie it is an incredibly oppressive and frightening atmosphere with the birds everywhere at the end like this movie leaves you with the idea that 
there is a new status quo in the world and we don't even quite know what it is yet, but clearly the tables have now turned and they're in charge. And in watching it again, I was doing some looking up of stuff like we always tend to do after. Mm. And I've probably known this before, but it felt like it was new again this time. And I, it's the one thing where like, I don't know whether I would have liked it more or not. I feel like the birds had the potential to almost have a planet of the apes level of, shock at the end Mm -hmm. and maybe would have been spoken of in the same breath with planet of the apes for its ending if hitchcock had gotten to do the ending he wanted because instead of that ending shot where they're driving off into the crowd of birds his original idea was to do a sequence where they're driving driving kind of like the end of zombie 2 going back to new york and Mm -hmm. driving driving getting back to san francisco uh, only to turn the corner and see the Golden Gate and see that the Golden Gate is covered with birds. And I'm thinking that had the potential to either be blood-curdling or perhaps laughable, which is why he didn't wind up doing it, apparently. like uh, It sounds like they did some special effects tests and whatever the shots were, he wasn't happy with the way it looked. So they probably couldn't get it to look right. And it probably would have been a matte painting. And the thing is, it also occurs to me, and maybe some folks out there will remember this with me, there is a movie that in many respects is basically a remake of The Birds, the more I think of it now, that I loved as a kid. There was a very schlocky, low-budget movie that is not even in the same caliber, but hit me so hard as a kid and was The Birds, except with spiders. And that's Kingdom of the Spiders in 1977 with Shatner. And it it's also the same thing. You don't know why it happens. The spiders just start turning on people and eating them and cocooning people. And then, and I'm going to spoil the end of Kingdom of the Spiders for people. And then, um, and and uh, you meet them all, and then it all leads to a bunch of them trapped in a lodge. And it had an ending that was one of the most bone-chilling endings I can remember from childhood that I both loved and sort of was terrified by at the same time, which is like they live through all this. The spiders are attacking. There are thousands of them. They're, the town is destroyed. And then at the very end, it's the next morning and it sounds like they're all gone. There's no more spiders. And they go, oh, okay. And they take the boards off the front window and they think, okay, it must all be over. And and then Shatner looks out and he goes, oh my God. And, they, and they're all like, what? And they all rush to the window and suddenly it pulls back. It's a terrible matte painting. Horrible looking as an adult when you revisit it. As a kid, it was fine. The, the camera pulls back and you see the entire town is cocooned by spider webs. They have encased everybody and they've clearly moved on to the next town and they're all they're all wrapped up for food and it just ends like that. And it's like that's kind of the birds, the same thing. Mm -hmm. And if they'd done the Golden Gate ending of this, it could have been an incredible scene or it could have made the rest of the movie laughable in comparison because and clearly he didn't feel like they could pull it off. And I feel like there's a lot of zombie movies, not just Night of the Living Dead, but there's a lot of zombie movies that sort of feel that way in the end as well, where it's sort of like you think, like, is this over? Is it past? They're going to wherever they're going, where they're going to be safe and be salvation. And then you realize when they arrive, like, nowhere's safe that's kind of that standard trope too of like the next morning like lulls you into a false sense of security to give you the gut punch at the end right and a lot of a lot of movies do that which by the way 
Sorry to keep going on this. We'll, the, we'll have to watch that sometime. Which, by the way, King of the Spiders, to save money, mm-hmm. used stock music pretty much and like uses music that Jerry Goldsmith did for the Twilight Zone decades earlier. So when you see the matte painting, they play this Jerry Goldsmith music that I remembered as a kid from Kingdom of the Spiders, only found out later it originally had been into Serve Man and other Twilight Zone episodes. And then the weird thing is, the second the matte painting is full screen and the Goldsmith music's playing, the Goldsmith music just stops, the credits start rolling, and then this Western guy comes on singing this song like, Will tomorrow bring the love we need? <laughs> it's like it's like Cry Wilderness, that kind of thing. I feel like we're on a bit of a tangent. We're on a tangent, but it's fine. Birds. King of the birds are the birds. <laughs> Here's something I didn't know (laughs) that I just found out while looking some stuff up now is that one of the things that Hitchcock was apparently inspired by that I don't remember reading about, but I'm sure fans of this already certainly knew well, was not just Dumarie's story, but the fact that there was an incident in a seaside town in California on August 18th, 1961, when the residents awoke to a scene that seemed straight out of a horror movie. I'm reading this straight from Wikipedia. Hordes of seabirds were dive-bombing their homes, crashing into cars, and spewing half-digested anchovies onto lawns. Hitchcock heard of this event and used it as research material for this film, and it turns out back in the 60s they didn't know, I don't know when they found out, but apparently later they found out toxic algae was the cause of the birds' behavior. Mm. They were really behaving that way, but evidently I guess they were... It's like, like a disoriented bird by toxic version algae. of Mad Cow, I, I guess. guess so. So there was a real incident, and that was part of the inspiration for this. What if something like that were extrapolated? And the kernel of that idea, too, I think is something that continues to scare people. And it is something that is sort of evergreen in terms of horror material, which is none of us despite like all of the science and the research it's like none of us really can completely understand the natural world at Mm -hmm. any time i mean certainly the last year and a half has kind of brought that into a much stronger focus for a lot of people that there's a feeling i think that's sort of embedded in the human brain that at any point nature can turn on you and nature can turn on you in an instant And it's something I think people feel much more strongly, say, if they live in an area that's prone to certain natural disasters, like if you live sort of like in Tornado Alley and that's something that's part of like what you live with, or if you live in parts of, say, like Japan or California that are prone to earthquakes, there's like that element of the natural world of natural disasters, forest fires, things that you feel like you could go from 
nothing to everything's on fire. But I think that also encompasses like the animal portion of the natural world of like just not knowing exactly what combination of things could lead to something going completely differently in the natural world. And sometimes maybe it's even like a cascading effect, right? Like people talk about the loss of bee colonies and how that might affect other animals or other plants, which then cascades to something else. And you kind of never know what's going to happen. And I think that that's part of what makes this movie still terrifying and still suspenseful and still effective like this much later and even with the level of effects they were able to achieve. Also wanted to mention is one of the things that provides us with the, in this case, the opposite side of the coin aspect of doing these two movies together is that Psycho is a movie that benefits enormously from the presence of music to the point where famously Bernard Herrmann even had to like argue Hitchcock into the use of the music that accompanies the shower scene. Didn't even wind up talking about the shower scene in depth, but there's yeah. a documentary. Go, you can go watch. watch a documentary about it. <laughs> um, it is amazing, anyway. Uh, but so the music was a huge part of that, and then cut to the birds, and there's no music. There's some source music in a couple of scenes, but there's no score, and there's electronic sounds that were used to create the bird sounds, and the absence of music helps to add to the oppressive atmosphere of this movie. And one of the things I remember that before we, we get to the end here um, that I wanted to make sure we had time to talk about was that uh, one of the themes that came up, I think, in one of the last times we watched it was the way of look. I think you may have found an article about this, too, that kind mm. of inspired you to think more about it is Tippi Hedren's character and some of the other women in the movie, including the old lady who's suddenly the incredibly convenient bird expert who turns up in the diner. Very convenient. But she's expert. also like Tippi Hedren's character who is seen as, you know, a very free spirit. Mm -hmm. And then there are the women in town who are more like traditional homemakers, one of which then turns on her. And of course the mother is against her being there. And there's the one whose wild eyes are perfectly lit in that one scene in the diner where she's blaming her. You brought the birds yeah. here. Who are you? What are you? Where did you come from? I think you're the cause of all this. I think you're evil! Evil! And you had talked in a previous thing about the way in which this movie, and I think it was an article you'd also read, the way in which this movie could be interpreted as a movie about women and their power and witches and like all kinds of themes about that that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, I mean, basically, you could see this as the natural world having like a ripple effect response to this sort of powerful convergence of female energy in one place. And it's sort of uh, like a triangle that becomes a bit of a parallelogram once you add like more people in the town. But you've got Melanie, who's the outsider, and she's kind of there chasing Mitch. Then you've also got Annie, the school teacher, who very clearly is also just completely in love 
with Mitch and can sort of see what Melanie's doing and basically is like, yeah, good luck, sister. Like, I've already been there and I'm going to be here to pick up the pieces when you're gone. And then you've also got his mother, who clearly has a very sort of powerful pull on Mitch and also both on Melanie and Annie, both of whom it seems do desperately want her affection and attention even though she's just wholly unlikable and like why would you even want mrs brenner to like like you it just it doesn't make any sense doesn't she even have a a speech at one point about how she couldn't relate to him as a kid mm -hmm. yeah it's just it's it's all very bizarre but what's also interesting is that a lot of the other speaking parts in this movie are also women the owner of the pet shop where she's going to get the birds is a woman and then she's interacting with the waitress at the diner in town as well as like the mother in the diner with her kids the somehow like ornithology hobbyist who lives in town and knows literally everything about birds like, there's just a lot of women there, which is not to say that there aren't men there with speaking parts. There's the guy who owns the diner. There's, yeah. like, Mr. Doom and Gloom, who's like, it's the end of the world, like, at the end of the bar there. You have all of these women who essentially could be seen or portrayed as, like, an unintentional coven that kind of comes together and whether they realize it or not, basically call forth this energy, especially when you think of the fact that bird is the British slang for a woman, especially a young woman. And yeah, so maybe the title isn't referring to the birds. It's in the referring sky. to the birds. Yeah. And Hitchcock would know the wordplay there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That really it's about essentially this like center point of pull between Melanie and Annie with like Mitch in the middle of it. And the two of them circling around him essentially creates this eddy that like throws all this energy out, which you could also see at the time as sort of, I guess a bit of like a warning against feminism and female empowerment and like the damage and danger that women could do. Well, it is telling that when the movie ends, it's almost like the movie is ending on the point of see how she's now controllable because she's been beaten down by the experience and she's reaching out to the representative of like the old traditions of the mother. And like, meanwhile, the little girl, like, never went down that route and she's still wanting to take her caged birds with her she wants to bring the lovebirds with them in the car like they didn't hurt anyone they didn't do anything wrong there's some creepy stuff in that final scene it's really creepy and so a lot of people have read into it in that sense too that it really is about like female power and female energy but meant as a negative commentary on that in a sense yeah yeah, well can be seen as a negative commentary on that and certainly knowing hitchcock's personality Mm -hmm. knowing the way that he essentially like tortured and ultimately like stalked 
and harass Tippy Hedren, like it kind of reads as though that's also his personal commentary about like beating her down and controlling her. And then she was going to work with him again in Marnie, Mm -hmm. which of course that's a whole other story, which is sort of beyond the purview of our podcast. But yeah, Yeah, although it is a horror story, it's a terrible movie. Yeah. I find Marnie wholly unwatchable. It's very uncomfortable. It's just, it's not good, but we'll, I'm sorry if you feel differently about it, but it's like, especially knowing how much he was harassing her. Yeah. It just feels even more so like you see it on camera. Also knowing what you know about Sean Connery too. Yeah. I mean, the whole, the whole thing is just, it's just, it's just an exercise in gross. Um, So what can we wind up then with saying about both, particularly in this Halloween season about, Psycho is obviously a proud, you know, inspiration for the slasher genre to come. And The Birds not only is a great suspense movie in its own right, and like we said, sort of a precursor to other under siege movies. There were ones before that, too. And very much like natural world apocalypse movies. Yeah, but then as you point out, metaphorically could also be seen as a witch movie or, you know, have so many different layers there. Mm Mm-hmm. They're they're both considered classics already, so they hardly need us to recommend them. No, Um, but I do think personally, I guess upon rewatching it, I think I probably find Psycho more rewatchable than The Birds, even though I absolutely love The Birds. But in terms of like an ambiance and especially maybe because of the soundtrack and the music, in Psycho of like having it on gives a sort of mood in the way that the birds also gives a mood and having it on, but that mood feels very like tense and filled with just a bit of, of dread. And that's what makes it effective as a horror movie. But I also think it's what makes it slightly uncomfortable. And I do feel like, I mean, you and I hem and haul all the time about remakes and whether they even should exist or need to exist or whatever it might be. But when you consider the fact that both of these movies themselves are an adaptation of someone else's written work, I would potentially be interested in seeing somebody else take the source material for the birds and like reimagine it from a woman's perspective there was a terrible tv movie sequel oh no don't tell me that i've watched it yeah the birds 2 land's end was a 1994 tv movie sequel directed by your friend and mine rick rosenthal who directed halloween 2 among other things but it was actually credited to alan smithy and uh it was intended to be a sequel and tippy hedron's in it but she doesn't play the same character. It's awful. It's truly. I'm, I'm shaking my head. You it's can't. It's truly see it. awful. Yeah. Let's just pretend that doesn't exist. It was on Showtime. As far as we're concerned, it doesn't exist. And the Psycho remake that Gus Van Zandt did doesn't exist either. No. That's one of the worst things ever made in the history no. of ever. But I, I would like to see. I mean, maybe not even this specific story. Like, you don't necessarily have to remake the birds. But 
I feel like I would be interested in seeing this type of story told from a woman's perspective, like either written and or directed by a woman, because I feel like it would change the experience of it. If that already exists, like we're not talking birds remakes. I mean, we're talking sort of like natural world apocalypse town under siege type of situation. So if somebody has someone like something to recommend, yeah. woman filmmaker Mm -hmm. or writer or writer i i would definitely be interested in watching it because i'd be curious if that would sort of change i guess what i feel is the overall message or the overall takeaway from it um because i do think ultimately in the end and really this was sort of our problem with psycho a little bit as well is that the ending doesn't feel like it quite nails it in terms of keeping with the consistency of the rest of the film Hmm. and i feel that way as well about the birds and i have no problem with there not being a resolution i'm okay with it ending with this sense of this might be how we live now or at least of we're not quite out of this yet maybe we're just getting more used to that now Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'd be okay with it being retold in a way that keeps that element of it. Mm -hmm. But the fact that the sort of strongest willed woman in the movie is just like reduced to a catatonic mess. And she seems to be the only one in that state. And first of all, to resolve their little love triangle, they just have poor Annie's eyes pecked out on her own front porch. So, you know, that always bothers me too. The fact that they kill her rather than work her into the stories somehow, it's bothersome. And then you've got everyone else who, you know, is certainly traumatized and upset by this whole thing. But, you know, Mitch is still in control and his mother is still about as sane as she ever was. And she's to be very honest. much in control. And very much in control. His younger sister, who's only 11 years old, does not actually seem all that traumatized by everything. She has her wits about her and she's certainly put together. And then you've got Melanie, who was your strongest character. And she is just, she's gone. I mean, she's completely gone. And that's the part for me that really sticks and makes me feel like they didn't quite nail the ending of this. And yet you still like this movie. Absolutely, I do. And I think part of me liking it is liking the overall story, the mood, the feeling, the acting is extraordinary, especially knowing that Tippi Hedren was not like a very experienced actor at that point had done more modeling and like commercial work and and she does an extraordinary job Suzanne Plachette is extraordinary it's like the acting is great the mood is great the film overall I think is quite good it's just I feel like it it doesn't deliver on the promise when it gets to the very end And I think part of that just comes down to the fact that you have 
these prolific directors like Hitchcock, who are just held to this high standard and venerated and saying they can, you know, everything they did was marvelous and perfect. And it's not the case. It's rare that we watch something that we don't feel at least some element of it could have benefited from either another editing pass or an addition or a subtraction or a change or whatever it might be. We and, just talked about Psycho and how we changed that ending. Yeah. And I think that you really can't separate the viewing of Hitchcock's film from the knowledge of Hitchcock as a person. And so this is the whole separating the art from the artist thing, which as I'm getting older, I feel you can't. You really but can't. But some people think they can, and that's And funny. I feel like this is a really clear example of how you can't separate it simply because despite all of his directorial skill of which he had much he still was a toxic person who did not know how to treat or relate to women and in being that type of person it has like no there's no chance for that not to seep through into the films like how many films are of his involve men who either hate their mother or hate their wife and you start to realize like maybe someone needed to take a little time and like <laughs> examine some of his own issues before he just injected them into the pop culture landscape so it's impossible to completely separate the art and the artist in this sense and i i do think that it could be better, but it doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblatofsky, that's nblit of sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Psycho, 1960, and The Birds, 1963. See, I, I'm starting to tour... Remember, I'm making a mental picture of it in my mind. You know, if you make a mental picturization of something. That's right, that's right. Take the time. Rules in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see, and they'll know, and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even hide.